Fear should never be our guiding principle, not in Atlanta. It should be love. Love should be leading us to deeper, more difficult truths. If I can create more space for one voice, one other voice, then I've done my job. Hello, and welcome to Troublemakers. Where we talk to interesting people making good trouble. That was Paul. And that was Mark. We had a conversation with Doug Shipman. Yes. And Doug led us to Marion. And so this was a fascinating conversation because Marion's background, um, having gone to Stanford and Columbia Law School. Yes. Um, and yet she's famous for an Instagram account. And, and then joining, you know, the Atlanta Regional Commission. Our conversation veers in so many ways that uh, tells you her diversity of experience. She doesn't define what she wants to be or what she wants to do. I mean, she, I guess basically what we're saying is that she is someone who's truly open to the experiences presented to her in, in her life. I am originally from California. I think that explains quite a lot about me, but I've lived in Atlanta since 2004. And I am a mother of two boys. They're biracial. And that also explains a lot about me and provides really a background for the work that I've done since I became more civically active and more engaged. I am a second generation Chinese American. My parents are from Taiwan and their parents originally were from China. And I think that all of these different identities do inform my outlook, my experience. And then just coming to the South from New York, city where I attended law school. I think this is just a unique storm <laughs> of experiences, philosophies, and outlook ever since I became more active and more involved in, I guess, the public arena. I do think that in that movement from being quite private and not involved at all to being more engaged and more outspoken, I think that finding my voice and then practicing using my voice has just been an incredible journey. And I continue to try to speak up in different arenas. I started a nonprofit, which actually came out of an Instagram account in which I was telling stories, sharing uh, my perspective, sharing very personal things. And now I'm, I'm at a public quasi-governmental agency. And so I don't really have that freedom to speak for myself. I certainly don't speak for the agency, but I'm still trying to influence conversations, particularly about what it means to be Asian American in the South and mm. in Atlanta. I too came down here from New York in 2001, a little bit longer than you. I'm a real Southerner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> unlike you. You're legit. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So second generation immigrant often find yourselves at that intersection of historic cultural activity in the community versus individualistic and striking your own course. Mm -hmm. And so talk a little bit about your family and why they did come here and how that fits into how you grew up. My mom came here originally first. She came here with her family and with her mother and father and her two brothers. And she had actually just met my dad. And so she sprung it on my dad that they were moving to the United States. And luckily for me, he decided to follow her. So they moved to Sacramento, California. And it's really interesting to me because so much of what I have done in the past with the stories uh, and the histories of Buford Highway here in Atlanta come from maybe a place of not even knowing my own family's history that well. They don't really talk that much about their history. I don't know whether it's because it's painful or they told me that it doesn't really matter. Why should I care? Like I should just 
be glad to be here. The journey for me along Beaufort Highway was really about reconnecting with not my own personal history because that was closed off to me in a way, but to understand more right. about why people came to the United States for my family, for my mother and her brothers. So part of coming to the United States was also so that they could mm. attend college here, even though they had stayed in Taiwan, they might not have gone to some really good schools. So it was for education. So um, did they go to school here? Yes. Yeah, so my, my, my mother and my uncles went to UC Davis. Mm -hmm. What did they, what did they study? My mom studied food science, okay. which is totally unrelated to the jobs that she ended up taking. She worked for the state of California doing computer-related activities. Yeah. Uh, Having a college education meant that you were then going to be a worthwhile person in society. So it didn't really matter what it was in as long as like, oh, you have a college degree. Come on in. Felt like. Now it's like, great, you got one. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so did, what? Did, you don't have your master's. <laughs> that's degree? right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> did you internalize it at all? You haven't exactly tried not to outperform the rest of society between Stanford and Columbia. And well, I don't know. I think that going to Stanford and Columbia are very almost stereotypical for me for second generation Chinese American. Yeah. Right? Were you supposed um, to be a dad, lawyer? Probably, because <laughs> yeah, because when you're growing up and you're just not that exposed to that many different kinds of you know professions and there's expectation that you either go to definitely college is not enough so you must get a second degree and you can go into engineering or be a doctor or be a lawyer and that's yeah. basically it did you want it i don't know it's hard to it's hard to distinguish what you want mm -hmm. when you're i don't know 16 17 yeah Right. It's From a little, it's, it's, it? it can be a little easier when you're a second year at Columbia in law school. So yeah, did you feel like, like you wanted it then? I mean, how did I get here? How you're just, I you're just here? asking the nature versus nurture, which is impossible for really anyone to know which is which or which weighs more heavily. Right. Everyone yeah. makes a decision and they go somewhere and that's just, yes, you move forward. There you go. That's the path. So Forward. this is crazy. What you just said just brought up, because I was thinking about my dad. So my dad majored in Chinese literature, which is really not something you do if you're planning to move to the United States, right? And <laughs> so... But he went to the top university in Taiwan, which is called National Taiwan University. And so I think maybe that also influenced my thought. And if my dad went to the Harvard of Taiwan, then there has to be some pressure on me to perform up to that standard. Were they very traditional anyway? No, like, okay. so, so I don't be. know what traditional means. If it's traditional <laughs> yeah. in the sense that worshiping ancestors and observing Chinese customs and holidays. And I attended Chinese school where my dad was the principal for a while. The interesting thing that if you ever take Asian American studies or I guess any ethnic studies curriculum is that the melting pot metaphor is something that's very assimilationist for the first generation, especially for people who have come from countries where standing out is to be probably targeted or mm -hmm. to be thrown in jail or yeah. worse. Yeah. Or um, killed, yeah. So you, you don't want to stick out. And no. I remember it was so interesting that I was talking to my mom. I think I was t telling her about how there's so much in real estate, right, that is racist mm -hmm. and how once black people started moving into neighborhoods, then this caused a response of either violence or white flight or both. And so it was interesting that when I was telling her this, that she told me a story that I'd never heard before, which is that when she and um, her family moved to Sacramento from Taiwan, 
But they were buying a house in a neighborhood. And apparently all the neighbors and residents in that neighborhood banded together and tried to stop the sale of the home because they were Asian. Yeah, so there's a couple of responses when immigrants come. That's one that that often happens. Another is to not give up the old at all, to find an enclave where I can basically create a version. And if you went to a Chinese school, like you had to be around kids that their families really had that approach. And so you, what must have been a weird intersection for you, right? Where your family doesn't want to tell you anything, yet you're immersed in the culture that you don't really have any grounding for because nobody will tell you anything. And yet you're surrounded by people who know everything and are, are deep into their histories. And yeah, it yeah. has to be a little uh, offsetting for you. That's that's fascinating. And wow, we're going really deep here. Because <laughs> Yes, the enclave that you bring up is really interesting because on, on, I'm just thinking about Buford Highway here and that connection that people, especially second generation and later on, are seeking with the traditions of their past, uh, the traditions that they may have grown up with, and just the familiarity of places where you don't stick out. And, and that's one of the things also part of just probably part of my own journey was just finding that familiarity and that comfort and that ability to be invisible in a way that is positive because there's the invisibility that is just one of difference the invisibility that you feel when you're overlooked or that you're just completely not on someone's radar like you're not present a powerless invisibility Yes, yes. And then there's the invisibility where you just feel okay in your own skin, like you're comfortable being in your own skin. And it's something that you're knowledgeable about, right? To some extent. Sure. And it's not foreign to you, even though it may be very foreign to others. So the interesting thing that I I keep thinking is (laughs) America demands for people to fit in, but then at the same time points out the other all the time too. Inclusion doesn't mean that we can't celebrate differences, right? That's fine. It's that we're not trying to point them out and then try to put them into a system that's against or for them in any way. How do you feel like what you're doing, what you have been doing echoes with what's happening right now in the world, what you're doing now with ARC? There's so many facets to that question. I stepped down from being the executive director of Wheel Up High, which is the organization that I founded, which came out of an Instagram account last year. It feels so long ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. 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 And I had been there for about four years and there are some executive directors and founders that stick around in their organization because without them would completely fall apart. And so they stick around for a long time, 20, 30 years, and they become completely identified with the organization or the movement that they started, which is totally fine. But I felt like if what you started and the idea that you built an organization around is really to succeed and really to continue growing, then it has to be able to live on its own. It can't depend on really the blood, sweat and tears of the founder. So now I'm at the Atlanta Regional Commission. And for the last year or so, I've actually been running a leadership trip called the Link Trip. And it brings 110 regional leaders from Atlanta to another city to learn about the issues and challenges that they're facing. And then ideally to bring some ideas back. And and that honestly has been such 
an amazing opportunity for me. And But recently, we've undergone some transition and some reorganization. And I'm now actually where I think I was meant to be this whole time. Not this whole time, but I really feel like I've moved into a place where everything that I love doing at Wheel of Buhai is somewhere where I can do it on a more regional scale. So I'm now managing community engagement and also the arts and planning in the community development group. And and that for me is really, it's just an amazing opportunity because that's what I think I was doing when, when I was working along Buford Highway is really sharing the stories of the people on Buford Highway and then creating opportunities, whether that was through events or storytelling for those narratives to be shared. Talk to me a little bit about the advocacy angle in Wheel of Buhai and on into what you're doing now. I get the feeling that it started mm. from a pure place, from a cel- <laughs> celebrate, I mean, but, but from celebrating people and having story and probably a personal connection to why you would want to do that. But at some point, any activity like that yes. um, morphs oh. into, oh, to what end exactly? And what are we trying to accomplish and why? And that becomes advocacy at some point. It has to. And so what was that path like for you? So that's a that's a great question, too. And I think that actually what it's morphed into is me being at the ARC. Because when I started advocating for more, I think it also started when I moved to Brickhaven in 2014. And Brickhaven had just incorporated a few years ago. And so they were doing a master plan for Buford Highway. And just like I said, growing up, I only thought that there were three careers that I could have. Maybe two. Maybe it was just like, you can either be a doctor or a lawyer. lawyer. Like there's not, yeah. (laughs) And I didn't know what planning was. I still don't know what planning is, to be honest, because it's very all encompassing. So I was introduced to master planning, community engagement, because I noticed that when I went to city council meetings or town halls, there was no one from Buford Highway there. And Buford (laughs) Highway is a huge chunk of Brookhaven. 30% of the population of Brookhaven is Hispanic. So why was no one there? And that was just confounding to me. It didn't make any sense. and, And it felt just exclusionary and opaque, like the process is completely opaque. So then I just started hosting events. Tactical urbanism was a big thing then. And so did some of that. And it was just advocating for more inclusion in the process. Who should determine the future of Buford Highway? Obviously, Buford Highway residents and business owners and immigrants. And what is the character of Buford Highway? It's very diverse. (laughs) Just things that I thought were obvious, but just don't translate into planning processes very well. So that's really where my journey has led me to where I am now. Because people would tell me, have you talked to anyone at ARC? Like, (laughs) ARC will know what to do. And and I'm like, oh, okay. So I got introduced to ARC. And what was your experience? A lot of the kind of work you're describing is the kind of power to the people and Mm -hmm. and confronting institutions. And ARC is an institution. (laughs) So that's exactly right. That's not necessarily a natural, you know, progression. It's not a natural progression, is it? It's just somehow the progression that I happen to stumble upon. And you're exactly right. ARC is an institution. And now I'm within this institution. And it's really interesting, too, right? How you can tell that people are struggling with being within institutions and trying to enact change or push for change. And then the, the outside provocateurs. It's just so fascinating to watch people. Even as you're trying to enact change yourself, you can just step back and watch people who are trying to start something, to create something, to move systems. Can you troublemake when you're part of the establishment? 
right? Like, no. is, is, is oh, that, wow. is that, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble. Well, I mean, <laughs> I is think, it, I think I just, is that even that I'm not possible? To say. <laughs> <laughs> well, tr- trouble has a bad connotation. I don't think it has to. Trouble doesn't mean destruction. And I think that's the way people take it. They hear you're a troublemaker. That means you're going to come in and destroy something. What trouble just means you're counter to what is established. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's easy to trouble make when you are somebody who's advocating on behalf of people without power mm. to the powers that be once you're the power mm. and now, Oh, now I have all the perspective of the, right. Everything you hear when you talk to the people with power. Oh, but it's more complicated than that. And we have all these yeah. constituencies. And, and so we'd love to be able to do that, but I know you just don't have quite the visibility <laughs> into how complicated and difficult this is. And, like, how Are do you, you sure not you end up married to a planner? Because <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you're reading from a script. <laughs> I, that's a hard. It's very hard, and for people with power to do that admission that you just did, that sometimes the functioning of that power has to change. It's a big discussion we're having in general in society. That is the mm-hmm. our billionaires that go to the Aspen Institute to talk about how they're going to save humanity all flying on private jets and without any consideration to how they make their money. We're not going to touch that. We're just going to talk about how we spend it to help people. Like I, that may not be good enough. Like you have to talk about where the power actually sits and changing how it's, how it flows. How do you do that when all of a sudden you're the person with the power? I wouldn't say I'm the person with the power. <laughs> well, you're closer to them than you were before. But I'm closer. Yes. And I don't know how much power planners have, but we do have some power, right? And so that's what I'm considering in my work now is that community engagement, this group, this team within the community development group is often for, for me, is there any way that we can change or to reimagine how this process could be? And so I, my task now is trying to rethink that for us. And it often has to do with identifying who has the power to direct these conversations. Even the questions that you ask, right, are, are geared towards some result that you would like to see. There's so many ways in which that power is operating upon Uh, specifically marginalized communities and communities that have been excluded from this process in the past. So these are the conversations. And I'm really happy to say that it's not like I'm the only one that is raising these issues. There are so many people within, you know, my team, within the agency, and then planners all over who are asking the same questions because they've been brought to even more urgent relief through COVID, through the summer, after the murder of George Floyd, like everything is becoming so, so apparent. To me, it feels like we've exposed the belly of the beast finally. And now is a perfect opportunity to do something about it. Like all of these things have converged where we're stuck at home. We're seeing the violence exposed. We're seeing people say out loud what they've never said out loud in explicit Mm -hmm. terms. You're like, there it is. Finally, you're saying it. Like, you're not coding it anymore. And now people are really taking seriously. It's like, there it is. There it is. Yeah, and like like you said, like, you're in the system. What what better way to change it than to be a part of it? I think there's also some wisdom in knowing which which battles to fight. And I think that some of your power is also in saying no. Like when I started working in Buford Highway, those were all my years of yes, starting to say yes to the things that really scared me quite a bit, which is even hiding behind an anonymous Instagram account for a while. I think the most fascinating part for people is like when people are causing trouble and there's no solution or when you get to asking them what the solution would be. And when 
I don't really have any solutions, to be honest, but I can talk about them. That's the moment when someone goes from being just noise to really having a position and having a purpose. And I think that turning point is so magical. But so I said yes to all the things that scared me. And recently, it's just been more about saying no, right? Realizing that even if you are within an institution, if you're not being heard, then that is not something you need to spend your energy upon and that you're not going to be able to change that situation. And sometimes you have to go back outside. Mm -hmm. This going inside, outside, because just because I work at the ARC doesn't mean that my whole existence is within this agency. Like sometimes I can go outside in a way. I was in a very prestigious leadership program for last year. And I think this is also what's galvanized me in some way to be more explicit about my Asian American identity, about being Chinese American, particularly in Atlanta, because in this leadership program, it focuses mainly on the dynamic between blacks and whites. I think the ethos of this leadership program is really captured in the Atlanta way. And this agreement between white business leaders and the Black community in Atlanta, that racial peace, racial harmony is better for us than conflict. Mm -hmm. If we just go along that business will succeed, that Atlanta will be successful, and that we won't have the violence here that we may see in other cities. And so in this leadership program, like I was nominated, I applied. And then in my interview, the person who interviewed me told me that there was there would be no problem that I would be accepted because I'm Asian and they're looking for more diversity. And so that was the first hint (laughs) to me that something was not okay. Because no one wants to be (laughs) admitted to You don't want to be just a checkbox. Yes. Earned your way into that. Not at all. And so actually on one of the first days of this leadership program, it was a two-day program, two-day event, and it was mostly about the black and white experience in Atlanta. And Asians and uh, Latinx were just non-white. We weren't given... You weren't the things that you are. You were, yeah, we weren't We right. weren't given the, the opportunity to be the things that we are, and then we were just labeled as non-white. Right. And, and then the second day, all the non-white, non-black people were asked right. to stand up in front of the group and and talk about what it meant to be, for me, Asian American in the South. And I said some very blunt things. I said, I've been tokenized and I I didn't, but in my back of my head, I was thinking when I interviewed for this, I was told I'd be accepted because I'm Asian. And then I said, I've been fetishized. Like when I was running the We Love You High account, a very well-known politician sent a direct message to me asking where he could get Chinese Viagra on Buford Highway. And I, so I shared these things And the response was horrific. I don't think that like being Asian American, that that I'm allowed to be angry. Like I'm not allowed to have a full spectrum of emotions. I'm allowed only the emotions that fit within nice, (laughs) nice, quiet Asian American uh, female. And so the, the the reaction in the room, one woman, one white woman was like, how can you say these things? Like we're so also, all of us are so honored to be in this room, Mm. to be in this program. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. you want to say that you're tokenized. And that for me is when I caused some major trouble. (laughs) And I eventually chose 
to just drop out of the program, even though that's not something you do when you get invited to that program. That's just not something you do. Had you ever uh, done that before? Had you ever stood in front of a room with that much potential Never, risk because and spoken? that's not, it's not okay. It's not okay to demand that. And I, and so that's also why I stepped away from We Live You Hives because there's this expectation and a constant demand for diversity to be consumed. Like if there's a metaphor about Buford Highway that it's the, the international dining mecca in Atlanta. It's where you go to get great food. But it's such an interesting phenomenon to feel like your identity is good only for consumption because it makes people feel good about themselves. It makes people feel that they're champions of diversity, that they're good people. All of these strange feelings that you then become the face of. So how did you change in that moment and how has it affected you since then? I think at that moment I was just very shocked. And and I did I did at that moment f- think about quitting on the spot. But then there's that internal wrestling, right? Am I better inside? And what is the consequence to me of leaving right now? Because it's such a distinguished leadership program. If I want to be successful in my career, is leaving this network a good idea? So I continued on in that program for several months. When you start an organization and you have the privilege of going through a branding exercise and it's who's your audience, especially in social media, who is your audience? Who are you speaking to? That moment helped me realize that my audience isn't going to be convincing people who see me as less than that I'm actually their equal. My audience is going to be people of color, other Asian Americans, who find themselves in the same situation and yet don't feel like they have any ability or wherewithal or power to say anything. If I can create more space for one voice, one other voice, then I've done my job. Did that moment make you an activist in a way that hadn't? Yeah. It's so funny because um, on Twitter, this is where I get into the most trouble is on Twitter. So Uh, don't uh, follow me. For a while, there was this uh, question that was like, who radicalized you? And people would quote black feminist authors or black thinkers or radical Asian thinkers, like just this, that. And I'm like, no, the moments that radicalize me are the ones in which I find myself in utter disbelief that whatever just happened to me just happened to me (laughs) and that my job then is to make it so that those moments stop happening that they don't happen for others that they stop happening for me i was fascinated to talk to you because i can see how it might feel you just tell me like doing something that's that's expanding or broadening the cultural story in a place Mm -hmm. like atlanta if it's not one of those two traditional cultural stories it might be troublemaking in itself. It really is. It, it really is because it's almost, there's no room for anything but the binary. Wait, no- which in one level is understandable. And that, that is a deep traumatic <laughs> right mm-hmm. history that we haven't come close to grappling with really. And there's so much there and there's so much that's, just under the surface that you don't want to scratch because you don't want to see what will happen if you do. So it's always in this very delicate fear-based equilibrium, mm, especially now exactly probably. Right. And so the thought of, yes, do it, don't do anything. <laughs> like we've, we barely got this word is don't do Don't do anything else. Don't tip this at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that means that, yeah, it would, it would leave whole sections of people 
without the feeling that they can have like I've had bad experiences too and I have needs and I have a voice and no one wants to listen to this voice. You're right. But here's my challenge then is that Atlanta with its history, Atlanta should be the place where those conversations are happening, right? I, I feel like it should be our most urgent calling to talk about those fears and to address that equilibrium because is it really equilibrium or like you said, is it just born out of fear? Fear should never be our guiding principle, not in Atlanta. It should be love, right? Love should be leading us to deeper, more difficult truths. I do feel like Atlanta should be the place where we are able to have those conversations and where we, with such a history, with such a legacy, should really be leading the nation. So last question for me, is this, is this kind of thing, this reluctant activist kind of work, what, what part of your future is this? Where are you headed? I honestly don't know. Partly for me, one of the things that I found always on Buford Highway and, and it's disappeared for a little bit, but sometimes in moments I, I can see it again, is that there's always beauty. There's always delight and joy and awe. So I think my job going forward is always to, to find those moments and to let them lead me wherever that may go. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's my hope.